So I want to begin the life of Saul this morning, uh, but that's not going to happen. So um, if you know a little something about me, you ask my wife. If I go on a road trip, I have a plan. Um, I'm not always the most patient driver because I want to get somewhere, and uh, I, I have an idea of how long it should take me. But I also have this curiosity that I have a plan until there's something really interesting, and like, not we're going to pull off on this, this exit and check this thing out. Um, so it's kind of like that in preparing a sermon series. I have this idea, I have this great plan of where we're going to go, and people ask me, how long do you think we'll be in First and Second Samuel? Don't ask me that because I don't know. Um, where are we going to be next week? Uh, well, I'll tell you when I start studying on, on Wednesday, usually, where we're going to be. So um, last week we looked at the preparation and beginning of Saul's role, or excuse me, Samuel's role uh, as judge in Israel and how his office points to Christ. Um, next week, Lord willing, we're going to do, Lord willing, we're going to do an overview of uh, really how uh, Saul comes in to be the uh, first king, and so uh, summarizing chapters 9 through 15. But as I started reading chapter 8, I couldn't get out of chapter 8. When you read uh, Israel's desire to have a king like the nations, it's worthy of its own treatment. It is so full of application, uh, we, we had to stop here, um, and because chapter Eight really exemplifies the history of, of, of all of Israel. But beyond that, it, it dissects the human heart. And so before getting into that, I want us to think about our own hearts. And one of the things that's going to come up in this text is this, uh, this idea of comparison. When we consider comparison, how often we compare ourselves to others. Um, what happens in ourselves when we begin to define ourselves and, and weigh ourselves against the belongings, the happiness, the situations of others around us. Uh, this begins very early on. Uh, Christmas morning, one sibling sees the present from another sibling, and they're like, I want his toy. I want what, what, what she has. Um, this uh, happens when you get a little older and everything that the other kids in the neighborhood are, are doing is, is really cool to you. You know, Billy gets a new bike. I want what, what, what Billy has. And um, she's doing this. I want to do what, what she does. And um, it, just, it just continues. Uh, there are things that we just do because everyone else is doing them. If you grew up in the 80s, we did this thing where we tight rolled the bottom of our jeans yeah, people are nodding and laughing along. We don't know who started it, but sooner, like everyone had to do it at some point. It doesn't get any different when we, when we grow up because we look at other adults and we think, some of you who are, who are alive in the 80s are still laughing at that. Um, we look at other adults who are like, I want that house. I want that kitchen. I want that car. Look at her wardrobe. Look at his whatever, fill in the blank. And social media is a haven for this. And we all the more are being conditioned to compare ourselves to others. Okay, so what's my point? Why do I bring this up? Because our sinful hearts want to be like everyone else. And sometimes it's, it's benign, like when the food on your spouse's plate looks better than the food on your own. But sometimes it goes much deeper than that. Often it goes straight to the depths of our heart. And Israel's problem is our problem. They look to the nations. They look to Billy's bike and say, I'll have what he's having. What makes him happy will make me happy. First, they wanted the gods of the nations. And they wanted the wealth of the nations. 
And now they want a king so they can be like the nations. It didn't take long. If you remember where we were last week at the end of chapter 7, there is peace in the land. Samuel is a good judge. He goes before the Lord. He intercedes for them. He, he offers sacrifices. The Lord delivers them from the Philistines and keeps them at bay for the entire life and ministry of Samuel. And there's peace and prosperity. Yet, please silence that, yet the moment the future is uncertain, they want to trust in men again. They want to look for their own solutions. And so as we read, I want you to look at the comparison between how Samuel responds to the problem and how the people respond to the problem. And we're going to stop frequently along the way in this, in, in this road trip and look at where we can learn about our hearts in a text like this. So I'm going to read all of chapter 8, and we're going to go through uh, all of chapter 8 uh, in three main sections. This is uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel. The second uh, name of his son was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and they perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like the nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they also are doing to you. Now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from them. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and the vineyards and the olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of the flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out to me because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. That we may also be like the nations, and that our king may judge us and go before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Let's pray.
Lord, that final song we sung should stir all of us. It is your word, O Lord, that is infallible. It is your word, O Lord, that is without error. It is your word, O Lord, that lays us naked and bare before you. We can try to hide from others. We can try to lie from ourselves. But you, O Lord, know the state of our hearts. You know what we love. You know what we serve. And the beauty of studying your word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, is that we see ourselves. We see the wicked condition of the human heart existed since Genesis 3. A heart that would create idols and kings from everything but you. This is our problem, O Lord. And if it were up to us, we would choose solutions of our own making, and we still do. Even though you became the solution for us. You sent your son to be the cure to our dead and broken hearts. You sent your spirit to conform us to the image of your son. To remind us of the greatness of our God. To remind us of our savior and our king. To remind us that we don't need to trust in princes or chariots, but we trust in the living God. Our living God took on flesh and walked among us, died in our place, and rose again that we might live as servants and princes to our God. It's in the name of our great Savior and King, Jesus our Lord, that we pray. Amen. All right, so first few verses here, one through three. Fast forward a little bit, Samuel's getting old. His sons are in the role of judge, and as we looked at last week, a judge is someone who decides they made decisions over Israel, but they're corrupt judges. They are taking bribes. Um, They are perverting justice. But it's not for lack of trying. So um, here, Samuel names his sons very godly names. Yoel, Yahweh is God. Abiah. Yahweh is our father. There are no J's in Hebrew, by the way. Tell that to your Jehovah's Witness friend next time they come to the door. He names his son Yahweh is God. Yahweh is our father. He wants to devote them to the Lord like he was devoted to the Lord. But his sons are wicked. And so what do the people do? They don't have any prospects for worthy judges. So they come up with an ingenious scheme. Verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gather together and come to Samuel at Ramah and say to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like the nations. Notice, the elder solution was not to call upon the Lord. The elder solution was not to petition the Lord for Samuel to intercede for them like he had done in the previous chapter. Their solution was not to appoint godly judges who weren't his sons. It wasn't a call for righteousness. It was a call to mimic the world. Look at the logic here. Our leaders are a mess. Our future is uncertain. We've got a great idea. Give us another guy and give him more power and that will fix everything. 
Sound familiar at all? How many rulers come to power in this same way? People are fearful. They look for a man to save them. And they give him complete power over them. Here's where the idol of comparison comes in. It works for everybody else. Look at all the other nations. They're fine. Billy gets to stay up late and watch R-rated movies. Billy's fine. Why can't I? Any, any of you ever did this justified in your own mind when you were a kid? But the Lord knew this would happen. The Lord prepared them for this. He, he, he prophesied this through Moses. Let's turn back to Deuteronomy again. Deuteronomy chapter 17. Last week, we looked at Deuteronomy chapter 17 um, earlier in the chapter, 8 through 13. It's almost like the Lord knew this was coming. The section on judges is immediately followed by the section on kings. Many generations later, they are now in the land. And here's what the Lord says to Moses to say to the people. Deuteronomy 17, I'm going to pick up in verse 14. When you come into the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will make a king over me like all the nations that were around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers. You shall not set as king over you. Uh, excuse me. From among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excess, excessive silver or gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a, in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read, it, uh, read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of, his, of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. If you're going to have a king, this is the king you need. But their desire to be like the nations would give them the king they deserve. If you're familiar with the history of Israel, everything that Moses warns against here comes to pass. Everything Moses advocates for here is a failure by most of the kings of Israel. So before we go any further, it wasn't evil to want a king, per se. But it was evil that they wanted to be like the nations that their desire for the king was a desire to be like everyone else instead of a desire to be like the Lord. This is the Lord looking upon the intentions of the heart. There's nothing inherently wrong within the office, but there's something inherently wrong within us that we would desire to be like everyone else. And so let's just be honest with ourselves 
the heart behind politics really hasn't changed much, has it? Even if the stage and the players do, it's the same in every nation in every age. People are more willing to serve men and give power over to them so that they don't have to make decisions for themselves, so they don't have to trust the Lord. Because our hearts don't trust the Lord. We are called to walk by faith and not by sight. But it is so much easier to trust what we can see and what we can touch. So brothers and sisters, this is especially important in an election year. We don't need to talk about candidates or platforms or any of those things. We need to talk about our hearts. Let's be honest. How many times has your heart, your security, your confidence day to day risen or fallen based on the president or the size and strength of our military? How many times have we in our own hearts been guilty to think if my guy just gets in, then everything will be okay. Then all will be right with the world again because things are how I, how I want them to be. We're no different. And this is not any different in the church. How many times have church leaders says, well, we're trying to be, we're trying to do what, what the scriptures say. We're trying to, keep, we're trying to do the, the uh, simple things. We've been preaching, we've been praying, and, and things aren't working fast enough. So what's the world doing? What strategies of the world can we begin to employ? How can we speed this thing up? How can I get what I want? And who has what I want? What's everybody else doing? I have many conversations with you. Many of us have been in uh, what they call seeker-sensitive churches. That it's like, oh, we need to attract more, more, more people. What, what attracts them? Movies and uh, productions and, you know, don't talk about that, that pesky thing called sin. How many pastors have I known who read more leadership books than they look to the scriptures? They're more concerned with what this corporation or this CEO is doing than looking at the examples that the Lord has put right before us. How many times has a pragmatism creeped in? You know, if we begin to just shave this hard edge off or shave this hard edge off, sometimes the Lord's too strict. I mean, it's working for everybody else, right? We want more people to come in. Emotionalism, you know, copying the tricks or the music of the world. If we sound like them, if we look like them, if we appeal to them, they'll want to be like us. It's foolish. But we keep doing it. That's the heart of the people. That heart still exists today. But I want you to see the difference in the heart of Samuel. Going back to... Uh, if you're still in Deuteronomy, go back to Samuel. Verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel. In the Hebrew, the thing was evil in Samuel's eyes. He was angry. He was as frustrated and disappointed as they were, but for different reasons. But what does Samuel do? He was displeased when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed. This is the difference between a man whose heart is after the Lord versus a man whose heart desires everything he sees. 
They look to the nations around them. Samuel, first thing, he goes to the Lord and he prays. We could camp out right here. Because let's be honest, I might have, might have to rip some band-aids off this morning. How often is prayer the last step in our decision-making process, if it's a step at all? What is your process? Think, think through big decisions you've made in your life. Where has prayer and humbling yourself before the Lord and fearing the Lord come into those decisions? Is it always first and foremost? Or is it after you look at everyone else around you, weighing every situation you see in the world, and all of your ideas don't come to pass, then you pray. Then you humble yourself before the Lord. This is such an important lesson for us to learn. Because every one of us in this room has done exactly what Israel's doing here. But the Lord knows the heart. Verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for because they have not rejected you. They have rejected me from being king over them. This is a theme throughout 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and Kings. A rejection of the Lord. And by extension, a rejection of his messengers. We talk about this often, but brothers and sisters, if you point people to Christ, if you plead with people to repent and believe, to turn from their sin, do not take it personal when they don't listen. For they are not rejecting you, but they are rejecting him. This is at the very heart of every unbeliever. I don't want God as my king. I don't want anyone to rule over me. I know what's best for me. And often, if we confront them with that, they will hate you. But if you love people more than you love God, you will shy away from those conversations. But if you recognize that the masses have always been rejecting the Lord, whether it is his word from Sinai or the word made flesh in Jerusalem. We want to be our own gods. We want to be our own kings. We want to plan our own future. We want to make our own authority. We want to create our own little kingdom for ourselves, and we don't want anyone to tell us no. This is what's at the heart of this passage. And the Lord said, this is what they've always done. Verse 8. According to the deeds that they have done from the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, they forsake me and they serve other gods. Don't be surprised. They're also doing it to you. Gideon gave them the same warning in Judges chapter 8. They wanted him to rule over them. Gideon wisely says, then... Men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your sons and your grandsons also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Gideon says this wisely and then falls on his face in the very next section of that chapter. 
he knew that there is only one who is worthy to rule and reign. He knew it wasn't him. But like so many leaders who know the Lord, they start to read their own headlines and they trust in their own prowess and they fall shortly thereafter. So don't be so quick to judge when we read this and think, oh, those foolish Israelites, man, don't we know better? Like John Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. We are pumping out idols all day long. And they're convincing too. And they're often very good things. But when you make a good thing an ultimate thing, it becomes an idol. When you take something and say, in you, I will find my security. In you, I will put my trust. In you is where I will be comforted and where I will be home and whole. And if that you is not the living God, that is an idol. And we should learn from Israel's mistakes because it never turns out well. But yet we think we're going to be the ones to break the trend. I know this has never worked for anyone else. But I, of course, I'm different. The rules don't apply to me. So how does the Lord respond? Verse 9. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. All right, give them what they want, but warn them first. Here's the thing with the Lord. He doesn't leave us in the dark. He doesn't hide good things from us. He makes them clear and he makes them plain. He puts it right before them. Ignorance will never be an excuse for sin. Because even if we blind our eyes to his word, he has written it on our consciences. Warn them. Here's what's coming. And guys, um, when we get into this, th this next section, this is one of the worst sales pitches for a king ever. Someone knocks on your door and says, hey, I want to sell you on the idea of a king. I want to go back to how great it worked for England. Let me tell you all the great things that a king is going to do to you. And as you read this, you're like, how would anyone fall for this? How would anyone take this? But as we start to read through, Examine your own heart here. How often do we ignore the warnings of Scripture? How often do we see it clearly on the page and think that it doesn't apply to us? But here's the reality for Israel and for us. If your cup is already full, if you are so full of your own ideas, if you are so set in your own ways, you can't receive any, anything from anyone else. You can't fill a cup that is already full. No one can convince you otherwise when you've already got a plan. And you're just waiting for it to be implemented. And if you reject the Lord in your heart, you won't listen to reason, you won't listen to warning, you won't listen to threats. Because you love your idol more than you love the Lord. This, brothers and sisters, is what idolatry looks like because there he's he's going to honestly tell them here's what the king will do and let me just tell you um uh just spoiler alert everything here that he warns them about will be in regular practice by the time of the rule of solomon saul david solomon 
By the time of Solomon's rule, they will see everything on this list. And here's the list. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. Here's what I want you to pay attention to. Look at the ways of the king. Look at what the king is known for. The king will take six times. Here's what he will do. Israel, you want a king, this is now your life. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. That sounds like fun. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties. And he will appoint some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and equipment for his chariots. You notice the emphasis here? He will take your daughters. Don't just think it's your sons. He's coming for your girls too. They will be his perfumers and his cooks and his bakers. Not just your family members. He'll take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive orchards. And he will give your stuff to his servants. He will take the tenth, a tithe of your grain and your vineyard. He will give it to his officers and his servants. You will now tie the tenth to the Lord and a tenth to your king. And it's probably not going to stop there. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys. And he will put them to his work. He will take the tenth, another tithe of your flocks. And you shall be his slaves. Man. In short, here's what the Lord is telling Samuel to tell the people. You want to trust in a king? Okay. But just know this. If you, you, when you trust in a king, he will trust in his material resources. He will trust in his technological advances. He will trust in everything that is his. And you know how he's going to fund it? On your back. He will raise your taxes. He will implement your labor, your family, and whatever you produce to make him and his friends rich and powerful. That's what you can expect from a king. Good thing that never happens anymore. Let's take a little history lesson quiz here. See if you know the answer to this. How many peoples throughout the ages have trusted in leaders, armies, wealth, for safety and salvation instead of trusting in the Lord? The answer? All of them. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 6. Now, here's where we are in the book of Romans. Chapter 5. Christ has come. Your king has taken the place as the second Adam, the true and better Adam that we sang of earlier. You are now in him, and so you live, and so you are justified. 
You are reconciled to God through faith in this king. The beginning of chapter 6. If you've been reconciled to God, don't sin any longer. You've been baptized into Christ. You have died to your sin. You are raised to new life with him. And as he lives, you live. You live for Christ now. But here's the reality. We're still stained by sin. And idols are still a temptation of our hearts. So right after the encouragement of justification, reconciliation, baptism, and union into Christ, let's pick up in verse 15 of chapter 6. Verse 16, actually. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? That was the worst of all of the warnings of them all. You will be his slave. You now serve him. You now live for him. There are only two options. You either are a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you are a slave of obedience, which leads to righteousness. When you trust in the systems and comforts of men, it always leads to slavery. The idols of our heart may seem like good things, but any desire that wants your allegiance to something other than the Lord, it is sinful. The gospel is always one of contrast, a slave to sin, a slave to righteousness. Because our God stands in opposition in contrast to the world. As Samuel stood in opposition, in contrast to the people's, verse 17, But thanks be to God that you were once obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Oh, if Israel would have learned. Remember, you were slaves in Egypt. Don't go back to being slaves of your king like you were slaves to Pharaoh. Follow me. Trust me. But we praise God. If you are standing here in Christ right now, you are a slave to your own desires. You are a slave to your own sin. But a righteous and benevolent taskmaster bought you with a perfect price. He removed your shackles and he shackled you to himself. And he holds you in his mighty hand. Praise God indeed. And so in that way, slavery is not a negative thing. Slavery is only negative if you, if you have an evil taskmaster. But if you serve in the house of the king, and he gives you abundantly all the benefits of a son, it's a joy to serve. Paul goes on. And having been set free from sin, having become slaves to righteousness. Brothers and sisters, we're going to serve something. Let it be righteousness and not sin. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. He uses the idea of of slavery. Not because the the, the Bible endorses slavery, but because it's something that's, that's known in their culture. He's using human terms. You understand what it means to be a slave, to be a bondservant to someone. I'm using those terms to show you you want to be bonded to Christ. 
For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You could do whatever you wanted except please the Lord. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? This is Israel's sin here. We want to be free to name our own leaders, to choose our own authority, to do whatever is right in our own eyes. And what fruit is there? They get Saul, the king they deserve. We'll see that next week. They get more wicked kings and they get righteous. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and you have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. That is the context of Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Idolatry is death. Slave to your own desires and your own passions is death. But a slave of God? It is a free gift of eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, our King. This is the gospel call. When we proclaim... Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. God took on flesh. He walked among us. He came to die for sins. He he came to go to the cross. And after three days, he rose again. What, What we are proclaiming is serve him or serve yourself and die. Follow him and live. Follow your desires and burn. And that's the question. If you are in Christ, you know the answer to that. But if you're not this morning, If you're sitting here and wondering, what is all this stuff about? The question is, will you serve your own passions and your own idols and the kings you've made in your heart and die a slave to them? Or will you turn to Christ, serve him, trust him, and live with him forever? So back to 1 Samuel. Now we get to verse 18. Here's the sales pitch. Everything is presented before you. And in verse 18, it's almost as if the Lord says, are you sure you want this? Last chance. You can turn back at any time. Because I know how how this will turn out. Verse 18. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourself. But the Lord will not answer you on that day. How often have we been in direct opposition to God? How often have we not listened to the warnings? How often do we think the consequences won't apply to us? And we get exactly what the Lord promises and then we cry out for help. Lord, where were you when I was choosing everything but you? Lord, help me. After I've dug my own grave and and jumped in. He's telling Israel, don't cry. Don't do what mama tells you not to do and then come crying for mama. 
that was where Israel found themselves. We're going to see how they respond in a moment. But also praise be to God that in Christ he no longer treats us like that. That even when we choose everything but him, even when we don't listen, even when we are disobedient because Christ is our mediator, when we cry for help, even when we dig our own ditch and jump in, he hears us. Sometimes he lets us wallow in that ditch for a while so we can learn our lesson. But he delivers us and he comes for us because we are his. That is why our Savior needed to come. Because otherwise we would respond exactly like Israel does. And surprise, surprise, they don't turn. And we end up right where we began. And now they're rooted in even deeper. They dig their heels in, verse 19, and the people refuse to obey the voice of Samuel. No, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Even after the warning, they refuse to obey. And what's their first word? Like a little two-year-old throwing a temper tantrum. No. Imagine the arrogance. I know what you told me, God. I know you warned me. I know you provided for us up until this point. You delivered us from our enemies. You tell us this is going to be bad. And what's the first thing I say? No. Every one of you can picture a two-year-old just standing up really straight with his chin in the air. No. And look how they say it so definitively. There shall be a king over us. I get what I want. I know what's best for me. Why? Because a king will decide for me. King will judge me. King will go before me in battle. King will save me from my enemies. A king will make us just like the nations. Just like everybody else. Are the requests of the masses ever any different? We want someone to rule over us. We want someone to fight for us. We want someone uh, to make our decisions. And we don't care what they take from us. Six times. They're going to take your sons, your daughters, your, your, your fields, your livestock. They're going to take your, your tithes. They're going to take everything. And the heart of every wicked politician in every age knows the same thing. Because here's the fact. When you let men rule over you, when men rule over you, when you let idols rule in your heart, they always take more than they give. They keep taking and taking and taking and taking with the promise of security. Now, again, I'm not saying that having governments or having leaders are inherently evil. They are amoral things that happen to be affected by sin. But the evil happens in our heart. When we look to them, when we serve them, when we trust them and not the Lord. And I know there's all these arguments about Man, like if, if this particular policy or this particular president, if we just got these things in order, if my life was somehow more peaceful on earth, everything would be better. 
Do you think that makes you rely more on the Lord, trust more in the Lord? I guarantee you our brothers and sisters who live in oppressive governments with little to no freedom, they have much more trust and communion in the Lord than we have in all of our abundance. Our brothers and sisters who have to read the Bible in secret, who are imprisoned for the gospel without access to the Bible, have a communion with the Lord we in a free country will never know. I love reading stories of martyrs, those persecuted. It is humbling and convicting of how many men who have been in prison for the gospel, men and women who've been in prison for the gospel, who upon their freedom actually wish to be back in the prison because it was there that they were fully dependent on the Lord. That they were fully aware every moment of the day that they needed him. That they were forced to pray. That they were forced to lean on him. And they get out into the freedoms and the comforts of the world and they distract them. That's convicting. It's not to trust in the security of human institutions. Like the masses, this will always be the temptation, but we will trust in the Lord. I want to look at a few Psalms, and I know I jumped out of order, um, Jacob, but you can follow along. We're going to start in Psalm 118. We read Psalm 118 earlier, and I want to show you why I chose Psalm 118 for our corporate reading. Psalm 118, uh, I want to pick up in verse 8 and go through verse 16. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surround me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I have sanctified myself. The Lord has called me to be holy. The Lord has called me to be set apart. I set myself apart from the nations. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went, uh, they went out like a fire among the thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushing hard so that they... So, excuse me, I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Psalm 20. We're doing this five and six, six through eight. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we will rise and stand upright. And finally, Psalm 146. I want to read the whole thing. It begins and ends with praise and looking to the Lord. But it is full of gospel encouragement. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I still have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. 
Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. Look at all these beautiful gospel promises. The Lord sets the prisoner free. He opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. By the way of the, but the way of the wicked he will bring to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. This is Samuel. Back in our text, verse 21. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. You think God needed Samuel to relay a message? You think God was, was ignorant of what they were saying? But this shows Samuel's heart. He goes again directly to the Lord. Lord, listen to what they've said. Aren't you hearing what they're saying about you? Do you know that you can talk to God like that? Do you know that you can tell him what all the mean things people said about you? And all the crazy things they say about him? He has this free conversation with the Lord because he trusts in the Lord. Samuel talks to God. And here's the response. The Lord said to Samuel for the second time, obey their voice. Make him a king. The Lord gives them exactly what they asked for. Like a good father, he often lets his children deal with the consequences of their decisions. How many parents have shaken their heads profusely when their children follow the crowd knowing exactly how it's going to turn out. I can only imagine my parents, how many times they had to shake their heads profusely with all the stupid things I did. And they knew it wouldn't turn out well. And I was determined to try anyway. I feel this often to know, I can speak for Brett and Jesse as well, we feel this as pastors. How many times we've sat with people and pleaded with them, and pointed them to Christ, and given them counsel. And then it's up to them if they will take the counsel or not. We entrust them to the Lord. But it hurts when people you love are on the way to difficulty or even destruction, and you feel helpless. That is what we have done to the Lord. That's what we do in our hearts every time we create idols. But praise God for his faithfulness. We would run away from him, prone to wander every chance we get. But in his providence, in his, in his sovereign mercy, he lets us flirt with our decisions for a while. Lets us feel the consequences of them. Um, got a lot of great comments last week on the uh, parenting stuff. Um, so let's, let's tie this back in a little bit. This is not a good strategy for younger children. All right? Um, younger children, little children, must learn how to dress and feed themselves. 
They must learn how to handle their chores and their schoolwork, proving to be wise before they're given any real responsibility. I think this is where a lot of parents fail, is that they treat their little child as if they're an adult that has the wisdom and discernment to make decisions for themselves. Children, like Israel, should never choose their own authority. We can't be trusted. But as they grow up, as they mature, as they learn responsibility, sometimes it is wise to let them see the futility of their own decisions within reason. Because the only way we will learn is by failing. You have to discern your child's maturity. And hopefully they learn faster than Israel. But the reality is, we have to fail early and often, and we don't learn things the easy way. But our fathers love him. And in his loving discipline, he gives us what we want sometimes. So that we can fall on our faces and run back to him and cry to our daddy. It's a difficult position for parents to be in. So, all that kind of leads to our final application. Right now, we're in the middle of Samuel where the authority of Israel is in tension. Who's going to reign over us? We kind of end on a bit of a, a cliffhanger because every man goes to his city. We don't get an answer here. But we are not people without an authority. We are not people without a leader. Thank God our king has come. Because our glorious God took on flesh. Our God reigned as king because we, he knew. Not only do we need a man to stand in, in, our, in our place, but we need to look to a man. We can't understand a God who's not like us. So our God became like us. That we might be like him. Here is our king. 1 Timothy 6. Uh, the second half of verse 15 to verse 16. This is our king. He who is the blessed and the only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. This is why we worship him and him alone. We have a king. We no longer need judges to decide for us. Because our king has given, also given us his mind so that we can know him. Because those who trust him are now given his discernment. Those who trust him can judge. Don't believe me. Look what, look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things. But he is himself to be judged by no one. There is only one judge over us. And our judge has already declared us righteous in him. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. 
This is why we don't need to trust in, in, in judges or kings. We have been given wisdom and discernment to judge, to discern for ourselves, to decide what is righteous and, and true. Because we have been given the mind of Christ. We have been given the discernment of his spirit. And so I want to give you some things to remember as we close. Seven things I could have written 70. Number one, it is okay to be different. We don't like to stand out from the world. We don't want to be different from everybody else. We want to be like all the other kids in the neighborhood. But that is exactly what God has called us to. He has called us to be holy. He has called us to be set apart. He has called, as we saw in Psalm 118. Number two, beware idolatry. We are all tempted to trust in solutions we can see. Solutions of our own making. Trust in men to lead us. Trust in the systems of men to comfort us. And they can so easily take the, the place of the Lord in our hearts. What is the remedy for that? Number three, don't forget your salvation like Israel did. Your great God has led you out of slavery. You were imprisoned by far more than Pharaoh. You were imprisoned by your own sin unto death. He has drawn you into his marvelous light. Our king is also our comfort. And so let's find comfort in him, number five. Our king is greater than any king or nation on earth. And if we are slaves to the king of kings, it is better than being ruler or emperor in hell. Because our king is a good one, number six. He gives us everything, and the only thing he takes is our sin. He took all of our sin upon himself. The kings of Israel will take, 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 take. He has taken all of our sins, past, present, future, and he gives us everything in him. And so we can say, and we should say, number seven, Christ, our king and mediator, is truly enough. And so no matter what happens in November, no matter what happens in elections or in the culture, no matter where we live, our king is our mediator and he is truly enough. We should trust him. So brothers and sisters, prepare your hearts to approach his table. I'll give you a few moments and then I'll direct us.